Job 4. I'd like to paint for you a scenario this morning. Think along the lines with me, if you would. Imagine that you or I or whoever it might be goes to the doctor. And I go to the doctor with a broken wrist. And I walk into the doctor and I, I say, Doctor, I think my wrist is broken. And the doctor looks at my wrist and he says, Yeah, it looks like it. It's very common around this time of year during ski and snowboard season that people break wrists. I can understand that. Perhaps that person with the broken wrist would look at the doctor and say, Well, doctor, actually, I wasn't skiing at all. I, I, I wasn't. That's I mean, not what happened. And he said, Well, nonsense. Doctor looks and he says, Nonsense. That's, that's ridiculous. It's very typical that skiers or snowboarders often break their wrists. You need to learn that when you fall, you don't try to brace your fall. You've got the padding and you've got the snow. Just let yourself fall. You'll do less damage. Don't try to brace yourself. Next time you go skiing, just, just don't, don't put your hands out when you're about to fall. And the person with the broken wrist would say, well, doctor, you don't understand me. I didn't break my wrist skiing. I didn't even go skiing. I, I, I'm not even a skier. And the doctor says, well, tell you what, while I'm at it, let me remind you, you need to wear a helmet. There's a lot of trees around. You don't want to hit one of those trees. You need to be careful. Be careful when you're skiing. You don't want to brace yourself. You don't want to hurt your head. Wear a helmet. Why don't you believe me that I wasn't skiing? And he says, well, because skiing is almost synonymous with breaking a wrist. I mean, people do it all the time. So you must have been skiing. Now, as we consider such a scenario, we would say that's kind of pastor. That's kind of preposterous. What doctor would do that? A doctor who judges a patient's actions based upon the results he sees, even though he has no ideas what happens, is not a very good doctor. Now, the doctor had fine advice, did he not? Don't brace yourself when you're falling, if you're skiing or snowboarding. Be sure to protect your head. I've never worn a helmet when I've gone skiing, but be sure to protect your head in some form or fashion when you go skiing. This is good advice. These are wise things. But see, the doctor was off. Because he was taking the results of a situation and inferring the actions that brought the results to pass. He was wrongly inferring it, but he was insisting on it. That's somewhat of the situation that we're going to be finding, not just here in Job chapters 4 and 5, but really in Job chapters 4 through 27. The comforters have come to Job. We recall last week they came and they sat with Job. And over these next many weeks, these comforters are going to have some fine things to say. They're going to have some good things to say. Now, they're going to have some things to say that are not accurate as well. Some of the things will be accurate. Some of the things won't be accurate. But just like the doctor who is telling a person some good things when those good things have absolutely no relation to why he's at the doctor's to begin with, so too Job's companions are coming to him with faulty assumptions that are underlying their advice. These comforters falsely assumed that just because bad things were happening to Job, that he was in fact in a great deal of sin in his life. And so with that kind of a mindset, I'd like us to step into Job 4 and 5 as we see the first conversation that we um, will witness between Job and his comforters. And as we do so, we're going to learn five lessons today. Five lessons from five claims that Eliphaz makes concerning the character of God and the nature of suffering in this world. We'll learn some lessons from these, I trust. 
Let's look at them together. Claim number one, and you're with me in Job 4. Claim number one, Job talks the talk, but he can't walk the walk. Job talks the talk, but he can't walk the walk. And we see this in verses 1 through 6. I will go ahead and read them for you. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands, and thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Eliphaz speaks up as soon as Job is finished with his first lamentation. You remember last week, Job lamented his life. He was asking God, why, can't, why was I even born? And why can't you just allow me to die, allow me to fall out of the misery within which I am? And while the comforters were sitting there silent with Job, they, I, I believe they thought that it would not have been appropriate to speak because they had no words of comfort for him. We recall last week when the comforters got there, they saw his state, and though they had come to offer him hope and comfort, when they saw how bad off he was, what was going through their minds is, this man must be some great sinner. And so they sat down on the ground. No one spoke for seven days and seven nights. They had no words to comfort him, and so they just kept their mouths shut. But now, Job has opened his mouth. And when he spoke, he spoke expecting that his comforters would relate to his grief. But when his comforters heard him pronounce his own innocence, when they heard him stand upon his righteousness before God, they got a little upset. To the point where they felt as though they could not withhold from speaking anymore, they have to speak out. And so Eliphaz begins in verses 3 through 6 by accusing Job of talking the talk, but not walking the walk. It seems, according to the text, that there was a tradition of their fathers that had taught that all circumstances that happened in their lives were direct results of their personal actions. We've talked about this for a few weeks now. The idea that everything that happens in life is a direct result of something that I have done. It would appear that perhaps even Job, to one degree or another, believed this way previously. He, to one degree or another, seemingly thought along these lines. So Eliphaz says, Job, you know that bad things happen to bad people. But now that you're found out, now that bad things have happened to you, now you're claiming that bad things don't just happen to, good, to bad people, bad things happen to good people. You are somehow trying to maintain your innocence even though bad things are now happening to you. Job, for years you've talked the talk. You've comforted others in their affliction. You've helped others in their needs. And possibly saying for years you have told other people that bad things only happen to bad people. But now bad things are happening to you, and you can't handle it. You won't repent. You won't get your sins under control. Well, the problem is, as we hear this argument of Eliphaz, we know that Job is innocent. We have spent chapters looking at the innocence of Job, recognizing that he had done nothing wrong. God himself claiming that Job was innocent in his affliction. 
And so Job, even if he didn't know it before, knows now that the righteous can indeed face great trouble. He knows that Satan is very real and that Satan would just as soon see the righteous destroyed and the wicked prosper. And so we don't really know what Job had known before this. We know that he never charged God foolishly. But Eliphaz seems to think that Job was on the same page as them. That they all agree that bad things only happen to bad people. Well, that's the first of Eliphaz's errors. This idea that there must have been something wrong with Job. He must have some sin in his life. And yet we learn from it that Satan, as I just mentioned, would just as soon see the righteous destroyed and would see the wicked prosper. So we must never discount the suffering of the righteous. But there's also another error here in this first claim. And that error is it's a gap in Eliphaz's thinking. There's a gap between his theoretical understanding of God and God's word and the life circumstances that are being lived out before him. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how often we try to live our lives based upon biblical theory instead of biblical reality. We read things in the Bible, we say, thus saith the Lord, without even considering the real world implications of our statements. Let me give you an example of what I mean here. When I was in college, this was before seminary, I was in undergraduate uh, college, and I was walking through the dorm that I was assistant manager of one day. I would walk through the dorms from time to time, and there were some preacher boys sitting at one of the desks in the lobby. And I'll never forget the conversation they were having. It was um, because I, it, was, it was somewhat discouraging to me. I'm walking through the lobby, and I hear one of them say this. He gets on his pious look, and he says, So, Romans 10.13 tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that mean that if a man can't speak... He can't be saved. Now, that bothers me greatly. I hope it bothers you as well. The idea that somebody would take the literal idea that if a person cannot with his mouth call upon the name of the Lord, he cannot be saved. And so if a person was born with the inability to speak, or if he loses his ability to speak for some reason, well then he's, he's hopeless. But this was an idea being espoused. That's an idea of ridiculous theory that has no practical application in the real world. Now, I can read Romans 10:13 and I can say all day that if you can't call upon the name of the Lord, then you can't be saved. I can say that. And I can even substantiate it with a verse in scripture, but when my theory begins to roll out into real life, you begin to recognize that that completely contradicts the character of God and it completely contradicts what is required of a man unto salvation. And so the, the theory kind of falls apart. But how often we do, this, do we do this with our own theological convictions? Now maybe it's not that crazy, ridiculous, or extreme. But how often do we do this? We put what we read in a bubble. And we take that outside of life's circumstances. And in doing so, we miss the mark. One of the ways that I think sometimes we do this is in the, our, the way in which we react to divorce. Now, we recognize from Scripture, and Legacy Baptist Church stands upon the doctrines of Scripture, that divorce is always sin. It is. I've said that before. But, do we ever stop to consider the numerous situations in which sinful men might find themselves in a situation where separation is a necessity, or separation is unavoidable? 
where because of the nature of, of other things happening in a sin-sick world, divorce happens. But if we put that doctrine in a bubble, where we say divorce is always sin, and we leave it right there, then what happens? We fail to be able to comfort those in divorce or separation situations because our theoretical theology has hardened our hearts against our compassion. And all of a sudden, we can't even feel bad for that person or comfort that person or help that person because our theoretical bubble of divorce is sin, which it is, don't get me wrong, has removed from us our compassion. And so we find no room to minister to divorced people or we find no room to minister to single mothers or single fathers because we cannot get over the rigid theology that we've erected in our hearts and in our minds. It's a case where we have failed to take what we know about God's word and translate it through a sin-sick world into how should this apply in real life. In, in a perfect world, divorce wouldn't happen. And if it did happen, it would be very rare. And it would be something that would be, you'd want to avoid it at all costs. But that's not the world in which we live. And so what are we going to do? Just erect walls around the church? And say, we're only going to let you in if you fit the model family? We can't do that. But we can't as well make concession for sin. And so you see how we have to take our understanding of theology and not, not, not compromise our theology, but we need to recognize how it applies within the culture and the world in which we live. Or perhaps we do the same thing that Eliphaz is doing. We see bad things happen and we cannot get over the idea that bad things are happening in judgment for sin. That bad things are happening because they're bad people. And so we have absolutely no means by which we can comfort those who are not being judged, but perhaps being sifted by Satan, because our theology is stuck in this bubble of theory. It sounds great to say that bad things happen because of sin in our lives. It sounds great to connect those dots. But when we look into the reality of life, that theology doesn't hold up. It does not hold up. And so we must take what we understand about God's word, about judgment of sin, and about circumstances, about reaping and sowing, which we'll get to in a moment, and we need to reconcile life situations with the word of God so that we can see what God's truth is telling us in light of what we see happening all around us. And the life has didn't do that. He said, I don't care if you claim you're, you're righteous, Job. I don't care if I can't look at you and find one black mark on your record. You must be sinning because bad things are happening to you. And so he is allowing his theoretical theology, his bubble theology, to override even what he's seeing and what he knows to be true. We need to be careful with that. And so we see the virtues as well as the errors of Eliphaz's first charge. He says, Job, you've taught others, but now you can't handle it. That bad things happen because of sin. That sin brings physical judgment. Yes, God is holy. Yes, sin brings judgment. But we must remember as believers that Job is not being judged for wickedness. He is being tempted and sifted by Satan. And on top of that, God is allowing it to happen. Claim one. Job, 
You can talk the talk, but you can't walk the walk. Claim number two, continuing verse seven. You reap what you sow, Eliphaz says. Job, you need to remember that you reap what you sow. Verse 7, he says, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Eliphaz waxes eloquent, if you will, in verses 7 through 11, on the destruction of the wicked. He asks, Whoever perished being innocent? Literally, every man that dies is guilty before God. No man is perfect. No one has ever died being innocent. And that makes sense. No man has ever died innocent. Every man has sinned before God. But springboarding off of this idea, he says then, you reap what you sow. Verse 8. Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. What he's saying here is, I've seen it, you've seen it. You reap what you sow. If you plow iniquity... If you sow wickedness, you will reap iniquity and wickedness. That's what happens. Now, this principle of sowing and reaping is found throughout Scripture. We cannot say Eliphaz is wrong in recognizing the principle of sowing and reaping. But he muddles it. And that's what we need to talk about today. Paul states this in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Paul would also say this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 related to sowing and reaping. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now in that case, he was speaking of giving. And so we see different contexts. We see sowing to corruption, reaping to corruption, sowing spiritually, reaping spiritually in due time. And we see this idea of physically sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly. Now, as we consider these verses, we must understand that the sowing and reaping principle of Scripture is both a natural principle that governs life as well as a divine law that governs final judgment, and spirituality. So the sowing and reaping elements of physical life fall within the jurisdiction of natural principles of sowing and reaping. I'll explain this in a moment. The sowing and reaping elements of our spiritual life fall within the jurisdiction of divine law and therefore are governed by the final judgment. Now, the natural principle of reaping is a natural extension of what is sown. It is not an ambiguous connection of related ideas. So if I lie, if I lie, and I lie to this entire congregation, and I, let's, let's, let's bring it even closer to home. Let's say I am stealing from this congregation money that that I am supposed to be diverting toward missions work. And that work isn't actually going towards mission work. It's going into my personal bank account. And for months and months and months, this is happening. And I'm telling you, hey, that missionary that we're sending that money to, he's so thankful. I know you've never met him, but he's very thankful for the money that he's been giving. He's writing letters every month. Uh, I'm reading the letters to you. This is going great. Everyone's so happy. Blessing this missionary. And I'm filling my pockets with that cash. Now, I am lying to you. That could go on indefinitely. 
Or I could one day decide, okay, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm going to get caught. I need to be careful. All of a sudden, I'm just going to tell the church, well, the missionary no longer needs our support, and we're going to put that money back into the general fund. And on a physical basis, I could reap that lie and never sow the consequences of that lie on a physical plane. You would never catch it. I got away with it completely scot-free. Or perhaps two or three months down the road, someone's looking at the books and they get a little bit curious. Or they're over visiting my house. I have them over for dinner and they see a letter from the missionary half written on my desk. And they say, wait a minute, how is a letter half written on pastor's desk? And I get caught. And now I'm going to suffer the physical consequences of that lie, that stealing. I might reap what I sow, or I might not reap what I sow in a physical world. Now we know that there are other consequences. Of course, the Holy Spirit's not going to be working well through me. I'm grieving the Spirit because I'm stealing from my congregation and lying and all of those things. But in a physical fashion... I may or I may not reap the consequences of that action, but one day I will stand before God. And the divine law of sowing and reaping says, I sowed lies and deceit and theft, and I will not be held guiltless before the throne of God one day. And there is no way around the divine law of sowing and reaping. Do you see the difference between the two? One of them I might very well get away with on this earth. Politicians get away with it every day, stealing, lying, every day. Not just politicians either. I mean, many people get away with stealing and lying and, and corruption every day, and they may never get caught. And even if they do get caught, they may never suffer consequences for it. But divine sowing and reaping, there's no way around. There is no way to avoid the consequences of standing before the throne of God. See, Eliphaz is determined to convince Job here that he is reaping physically what he sowed physically. But what on earth could Job have sown in his own life that would have naturally reaped the consequences of a great wind coming, smiting the four corners of the house of his eldest son, and that house falling on top of his children and them dying? What on earth could Job have done that would have naturally connected those two together so that the sowing and the reaping principle could work out. See, what Job was doing here is he was, or what Eliphaz was doing is trying to convince Job that something that he's doing that falls under the divine law of sowing and reaping, some sin of his heart, is causing the natural law of sowing and reaping to come into effect. And God doesn't work that way. They don't... Mix. Now, there might have been a scenario, I can think of a scenario where Job might have been reaping what he sows. Job is a dishonest man, and he decides when he's asking his, for, when he's, he's, he's hired some Chaldeans to build this house for his eldest son. And he tells these Chaldeans, I'll pay you half in advance so you can buy materials, and then I'll give you the other half when the job is done. But he was lying to these Chaldeans, and he didn't give them the money, and so they couldn't get the good materials, and so they had to skimp on the materials, so they got bad materials, and he's pressuring them to get the job done faster than they wanted, so they didn't do a good job. And months down the road, a great wind comes, smites the house, and his children die. Well then, sure, we can trace 
his children dying in a physical line to the fact that Job was dishonest, that he didn't do what he was supposed to do, that he, he lied to these Chaldeans, that when they built the house they didn't do a good job, and now his children are dead. We can see that sowing and reaping principle. But Job wasn't any of those things. Job was a man who was right before God. He was innocent in the eyes of God. He hadn't been dishonest. He hadn't lied and cheated and stolen. So we can't connect the two. And so a life as is confusing things here. And we can do the same. We see how easy it can be to take a clear biblical principle and misapply it or misunderstand it. Or how sometimes we can extend a clear biblical teaching to anti-biblical conclusions. And this is why we must be very careful. We must be very discerning. We must be very circumspect in how we apply biblical principles to our lives. And please don't get me wrong. Perhaps some of you are thinking, well, I can think of some spiritual problems that have physical manifestations. It's true. There are physical or spiritual things that boil over into physical problems in our lives. But we're still talking about physical things affecting our body. We're talking about natural sowing and reaping. And we're not, we don't need to blur the lines between the natural sowing and reaping, sin and its consequences in that regard, and divine sowing and reaping, sin and judgment. Sin and consequences. Sin and judgment. They're two very different things. And we don't need to blur the lines. Claim number three. The witness of an unknown spirit. In verses 12 through 21, Eliphaz describes something somewhat unique. He states that he saw a vision in a dream. And in this vision, a spirit passed by him which he could not discern. Now the message of this spirit is found in verses 12 Excuse me, 17 through 21. Let's read them together. Let me get there and then we can read them together. Next page. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, which foundations are in the is in the dust. Whose foundation is in the dust? Which are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die, even without wisdom. Here we have a man who claims that a spirit of revelation has spoken to him. Now whether this is a fanciful dream or a true vision, we cannot know. But what we do know is that Whatever, whether this was a dream or whether this was a vision, it is not from God. And that this message that he received is not from God either. Say, Pastor, how do you know this? Well, first of all, Eliphaz says, and look with me in verse 15. Then a spirit passed before my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice. I challenge you to find instances in Scripture where the spirit that speaks to a man from God is vague, is aloof, or cannot be discerned. You won't find it. God does not operate through vague, 
aloof and difficult to discern. Now, the guy in a vision from God might not know what he's seeing. He sees the head of an ox and the head of an eagle and four wings, six wings, eight wings. Uh, He sees things that he can't comprehend, but he knows what he's seeing. It's not ambiguous. It's not some strange mystical experience. And second, his message is not right. It seems very right. But just like Eliphaz's rebuke to Job, if nothing else, it's in the wrong context. But in this we see that, in fact, there are some things about it that are off. And so we must conclude one of two things. Either this is an old man who is seeing things, which we know him to be an old man, or this was a vision from a familiar spirit, from an unknown spirit, perhaps demonic. I actually, if you want your pastor's opinion, lean towards the demonic spirit or the familiar spirit, and I'll explain why. In Eliphaz's explanation of what this spirit says, he says, Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. In this vision, this spirit is attempting to convince Eliphaz that mankind has no special place That mankind is nothing in the eyes of God because, I mean, God doesn't even regard his angels. He even charged his angels with folly. I see in this a little bit of slander. It seems as though perhaps this angel is a little bitter that he was charged with folly. Perhaps he is one of those fallen angels who was charged with folly. And so he's trying to convince Eliphaz, you know, why would God regard man? He even charges his own angels with folly. He doesn't put any trust in his servants. He doesn't put any regard to his servants. Well, in fact, when we look up at the stars, we might think, wow, how insignificant am I? But what did the psalmist say in Psalm 8? What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? In fact, he does put trust in his servants. And he didn't charge all of his angels with folly. He charged the angels with folly that followed after Satan. And so I see some mischaracterization of God's character here. And I'm inclined to believe that this is a familiar spirit. That this is not a spirit from God. But as we apply this third point, the witness of the unknown spirit, what we can know today, I don't know how it is, Completely, that, that Job and his friends knew of God. We know that they were not that far removed from Adam and from Noah and these sorts of things. So there would have been a great deal of knowledge of God passed down from generation to generation. Perhaps God had prophets that were walking the earth declaring the word of the Lord. But they seem to know a great deal about God. However, in our age, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt how to learn about God. We can know beyond a doubt how to pinpoint God's character. And it's not through visions. It's not through prophets. The scriptures testify of themselves that this is the finished work and word of God. All things that we need for life and godliness. Completed revelation. Once delivered to the saints by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is our authority. This is what we rest upon.
Eliphaz's next claim, two more claims there in chapter 5 of Job. His next claim is this. Man is born unto trouble. And again, we have a very valid claim with an improper application. Chapter 5 begins with Eliphaz calling for an advocate for Job. He says, Job, if you are so righteous, where is your spiritual advocate? You will not have any spiritual advocacy until you admit your unrighteousness. He says, Job, the very fact that there is no advocate for you, that no angel is coming to your aid, that, that there is no advocacy for you, is proving that you're, you're mired in unrighteousness, that you have sin in your life. Now, I will mention very quickly here, notice he says in chapter 5, Call now if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? Saints here is simply a Hebrew word which means holy, or in this case, the holy ones. It was often a term used to designate angels in the scriptures, to designate spiritual beings. We see that precedent at least in Psalm 89.5, but we see it in numerous places in scripture. This word saints here has nothing to do with what it means in the New Testament. It has nothing to do with what we call a saint in the New Testament church, and it certainly has nothing to do with the false Catholic doctrine whereby certain godly men and women are esteemed to have some extra sway before the throne of God and some ability to intercede on our behalf. That concept of saints who are interceding for us in that manner, that concept of, of men and women who, through their godliness on this earth, as dictated by the church, have received some lofty elevation in the heavens, is not a concept with any biblical merit. And on top of that... It denies the reality that 1 John 2, 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is our exclusive advocate. It denies the reality of 1 Timothy 2, 5 that Jesus Christ is our only and exclusive mediator. The Bible never, ever says that Mary is an advocate or a mediator for us. The Bible never says Paul or Peter or anyone else for that matter intercedes before the throne of God for us. Because Jesus Christ died, rose again, is at the right hand of the Father, and is our advocate, is our mediator. We don't need another. And so the word saint here is not speaking of saints in the Catholic terminology or saints in the New Testament terminology. It simply means holy ones. And it's speaking of divine beings, angelic beings. And so... Life has says, which of the saints, which of the holy ones, which divine being will advocate for you? He says, there is no advocate for you because you're a sinner, Job. And he gives, he enumerates the typical situation of the unrighteous in verses 2 through 7. Verse 2, he says, wrath destroys the foolish, envy destroys the vain. In verse 3, temporary prosperity of the wicked becomes swift cursing. Verse 4, the, the wicked will have their children destroyed. Verse 5, the wicked will have their crops and herds destroyed. Do you think he's pinpointing Job here? Children, crops, herds destroyed. He's saying that Job is one of the wicked. That's what he's doing here. But then verses 6 and 7 come along. Verses which we so often hear and are actually quite often taken somewhat out of context. See, the trouble is that trouble doesn't just come at random. But man is born to trouble. And that's what Eliphaz says here. Man is born to trouble. And trouble is a just result of his sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. I'm sure you've heard that before. Perhaps you used in numerous contexts. But do you see the incorrect dots that Eliphaz is connecting? I used to love connect the dots. I don't know why. I'm an artsy kind of a person in a manner of speaking. I was never very good at art, but I liked art. And I used to love to connect the dots. But you know what bothered me more than anything? Is when my little sister and I would do connect the dots together when we were younger. Because I would be going from one to two to three to four. And my little sister, being my little sister, would be trying to copy brother. And so she'd go from one to 37 to two to 48 to 22 to 23 and and I would look at it and it would bother me because the dots are, are the dots are all connected aren't they yes but they're not connected properly and if you don't connect the dots properly then you're not going to get the intended result the same thing with scripture the same thing with God's character we can't just connect dots and expect that everything's okay we must connect the dots properly for things to be right if things aren't connected properly, then it's not right. It's wrong. But all the dots are connected, Pastor. But they're not connected properly. There is a proper way to do it. And Eliphaz is drawn all over that connect the dots. He's going all over the board here, as will all of Job's companions. He's saying this. Trouble doesn't just appear out of the ground. It doesn't just flow out of the dust. You don't just... All of a sudden you're walking around one day and out of the dust pops trouble and all of your kids are dead. That's not how trouble happens. There is a definite source for trouble. But we do see that man is born unto trouble. And he is born unto trouble, therefore, because he is born unto sin. I agree with all of these things, but then he says, Conclusion, you are sinful, therefore you have trouble. What is Eliphaz's theology forgetting? Okay, let me think here. Man is born to trouble. Yes, trouble happens to man. Even little babies can have trouble. We even prayed for a little baby today having trouble. So babies can have trouble. Trouble happens. Bad things happen. Sin is bad. Bad things happen because of sin. Sin is in the world. Trouble's in the world. What is he forgetting? He's forgetting Satan. He's forgetting that there's a bad, bad angel who has lots of bad, bad angels that have followed him and they want to cause you trouble outside of just your sin because they're sinful. Sure, it's sin that's causing the trouble, but it doesn't have to be your sin that's causing the trouble. If I were to walk out the door today and somebody came up and put a gun to my chest and pulled the trigger and ran away, there wouldn't be any reason for you to think that your pastor had some terrible sin in his life. There's a sin in someone else's life and that someone else's sin is, has caused him to do something terrible. Sin is the cause of trouble, but not necessarily my sin being the cause of my trouble. Because there is a man, an angel, named Satan. Trouble does indeed come. But why it comes, when it comes, and how it comes is not simply a product of my personal actions. Job's children did not die because Job sinned before God. That's not the kind of God that we serve. Job's crops and herds were not burned and stolen because Job was an unrighteous man. That's not the kind of God we serve. Wicked men, under the guidance of Satan, took Job's herds. 
under the guidance of Satan, terrible storms came and smote the house of Job's eldest son, and all of his children were killed. Satan was afflicting Job's body with terrible boils. This is not having to do with Job's sin. It does have everything to do with a sin-sick world, but not explicitly Job's sin. One more charge. Stay with me. One more charge, and then we're finished. Claim number five. Appreciate your chastening, Job. Appreciate your chastening. Notice verse 17. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Well, we can say nothing against that. We turn to Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and we read the same thing. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. And so we see very clearly that this is true, that we are to be rejoicing in that correction because that correction reminds us that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us. But good wisdom, improperly applied, becomes foolishness. May I say that again? Good wisdom, improperly applied, becomes foolishness. Certainly it is our duty to recognize God's hand of chastening and to thank Him for it. For God's chastening brings about in us purity, helps us grow in the Lord, helps us become more like Christ. But Job was not being chastened. Job was not being chastened. He was being tried. He was being sifted by God, but he was not being chastened for sin. We must remember that at all times. So these words of Eliphaz, which in a circumstance where chastening would, would have been happening, might have actually been somewhat of a helpful reminder to Job. If Job was going through chastening, then for a friend to come up and say, Job, remember, delight in your chastening. Be happy in your chastening because God corrects those he loves. Wow, you're right. I just need to get this taken care of and get it out of my life. What an encouragement that would have been to Job. But Job hadn't done anything wrong. He'd racked his brain trying to think of something he'd done wrong. He'd done the sacrifices. He did what he needed to do to be right with God. And the bad things still happened. And so this charge, Job, just rejoice in your chastening, became nothing more than a bitter wound. Nothing more than salt in an open wound. Nothing more than, I could think of all sorts of grating examples of how terrible this must have been for Job. Lemon juice in an open wound. Whatever you want to say, ouch. This was, this was worse for Job. It made it worse. And it made it worse unnecessarily. Eliphaz was twisting the knife that was in Job already when he was trying to help him. And so the final lesson that we can learn from Eliphaz's claims this morning. You know, we must be careful. As was mentioned, it's been mentioned a couple times over the weeks now, not in the sermon, but outside of the sermon context. We must be careful to guard our advice, to guard our interpretation of trial. For what we might see as well-intentioned advice might actually be destructive. Eliphaz came to comfort his friend, and he has failed in his endeavor. The faithful wounds of a friend are comfort, but incorrect accusations are not. 
Now the key then is discernment and prayer for wisdom so that we might comfort people the way they need to be comforted. Not the way we think they need to be comforted, but the way they truly need to be comforted. So that we can take the word of God, we can take the wisdom of God and relay it to people in a way in which they can understand it and they can connect it to their own situation properly. See, because if you had a doctor and you walked in with a broken wrist that you had gotten falling down the stairs and he began to rebuke you for the way that you ski or snowboard, that advice would do you absolutely no good. Now, perhaps some of his his advice was good advice. But because he was throwing upon you implications that had nothing to do with you, you might even begin to resent the implications that doctor was making about your personal actions and the consequences of those actions. He said a lot of good things. Wear a helmet. Don't brace yourself. Maybe some things that weren't as good. But regardless, it doesn't apply, doctor. It doesn't apply to me. And I resent the implication that it does. This was the place where Job found himself. And it made his situation far more difficult than it needed to be. So let us be careful that we are not someone's Eliphaz. We will glean the good from Eliphaz. Some good things he had to say, sowing and reaping. It's a good thing. Comfort amidst chastening. It's a good thing. But we need to be careful to spit out the bones. To throw away the bad. And regardless, we always need to remember that none of it (laughs) applies to Job's situation. And that made each of these men very bad comforters. Let's pray.